258, Chapters 4 and 5 of Gulliver's Travels. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 258, Camp Craft Lit. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, hello! I have returned. I have returned from TNNA, and I, I have returned to Camp Craftlet, also known as A House Full of Chaos. I don't know if I told you, but the darling husband got a new job, which is so marvelously awesome, and he's so happy, and it was so close to us being at the end of our ropes. Now I can tell you, truth can now be told. It was really scary for the last couple of months, and it's not scary anymore, and it's ever so much happier. But it does mean that I, <laughs> I raced home. I drove home from Columbus, Ohio to Northern Virginia late Sunday night, and the next morning he went off to Camden, New Jersey for three days. And, uh, and it was great. I had a lot of fun with the kids. He's happy. I'm happy. Everybody's happy. But it was, boy, you talk about hitting the ground running. And, uh, and, and kind of coming off of TNNA, I have so many emails I still have to send to people who I met. And wonderful, wonderful people. And wonderful, wonderful things. I do want to let you know that over at the mamaonits.com blog. I will be over the next month blogging about a bunch of the things that people were giving out for free. These are, are companies that are giving out uh, tools, yarns, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, clearly they're giving it away as part of their marketing and publicity strategy. And I want to support that <laughs> because ultimately maybe it means that there will be more free stuff coming to us that way. So I am going to be blogging on Mama Onits about some of the really nifty, cool, and really inventive things that I found. There are some amazing engineers out there working in yarniness. Chao Gu, uh, which evidently means crafty girl, I think, in Chinese. I'm assuming it's Mandarin. I'm not entirely sure. Someone can correct me. She, uh, the people there are marvelous, and the guy who is their engineer is really awesome. I really, really liked him a lot. So that's just, just a little tidbit for those of you who are still of the knitting persuasion. For those of you who aren't, I am starting to work on the interviews with the non-knitters and I will be interspersing their interviews with the interviews of, of really remarkable, cool people that I met at TNNA doing some really awesome things, and uh, and not all of them are knitting related. Some of, some of them are kind of tangentially, but it was an interesting time. So I'm looking forward to bringing all of that to you. 
Now, as one might expect, coming back from a long weekend of insane networking and work working, I am pressed for time. So I am going to get on with it right now. We have chapters four and five. And I, I think I mentioned this last time. I am bundling these two chapters together because they're both a little gross. And best for us, just get rid of that now and do it all at once in one fell swoop and just just say no at least for a little while to any more grossness uh the the story itself the plot part is not that shocking it's not that big a surprise it kind of is what it is you know he's getting into brobdingnagian society he's learning his way around he's going to visit more places and see more things and probably as last time get into a little more peril because of course peril and conflict are what make stories interesting to us we like to see how people get into situations and then get out of them as well and and there will be no lack of that today in Gulliver's Travels. And just a, a couple of reminders. Um, he's going to talk about mountains that are 30 miles high. Now that, of course, is not actually possible. Um, however, if the the mountains that they're talking about in Brobdingnag are, uh, you know, Brobdingnagian dimensions and, and heights and stuff, and then you reduce them by a factor of 12, because that's how Swift has chosen to do this, 12 uh, a factor of 12 smaller for the Lilliputians and a factor of 12 bigger for the Brobdingnagians. Um, it really would only be two and a half miles high, that mountain range. And uh, and, the, and that's still formidable. That's like, you know, the Alps, which would be not nothing to cross. And so he's he's trying to, to you know, Swift kind of picks and chooses what he's going to deal with scientifically. And so this is part of his explanation for why we never saw the giants in Europe or outside of Brobdingnag is, well, there's this mountain range. Oh, and it's got volcanoes. Oh, and there's this, you know, and he, he kind of just adds to, uh, to all of that and allows that to answer, answer for why nobody else had ever seen these people, which is fine. And he's going to talk about, you know, animals and their sizes and all of that. And so all of that is, you know, reduce it by a factor of 12 and then you get our, sizes and swift has done the math and <laughs> according to our friend isaac asimov who i trust that is all correct now part of part of what happens in today's chapters which i think is really interesting and again another reason why swift is just such a complex and interesting storyteller is he he's we've already seen the queen crunching her bones and uh he's already talked about how kind of unnerving and gross it is to see people and their skin up close at that massive magnification. So we've already gotten some of that, but we continue to have this uh, idea put forward in the book that the Brobdingnagians are virtuous, that they are good, that their laws are better. And they're making fun of the, the little people of Europe thinking, you know, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing, that these, are, these, these Europeans must be so funny thinking that they're so important when they're so small, like you, Gulliver. So we've, we've got that backdrop and he's gonna take that and he's going to amplify it even more. He's gonna 
up the up the ante a bit and go out among the people and he's going to see the reality for himself. Now you've got the Stockholm syndrome thing happening for him where he's while he is still defending himself and defending Europeans, he is spending more time listening to the Brobdingnagians, and so it's it's starting to wear on him. At the same time, he is able to see their weaknesses, because of his size, their weaknesses in a way that they cannot. And this is just another way that Swift has of, of doing the, you know, remove the log from your own eye before you try and remove the moat from your neighbors. This is one of those moments of look to your own friend. This is perhaps all the stuff you're complaining about that is someone else's problem is maybe a little bit more your problem. And he he starts to talk about uh, bugs and things like that, which is kind of creepy crawly. But uh, listen, listen to the implications of the the bug is he making a connection to humans in general is he making a connection to europeans is he is he just saying something that he thinks is going to be gross and interesting i i've read lots of different interpretations of things that happen in these two chapters and i'm you know i am always hesitant to jack and jill things for those of you who are new there was an essay i read in ap english where um our, our our teacher handed us an essay that was written about Jack and Jill, and it was ridiculous and over the top. And it was, Jack and Jill is clearly a sexual allegory of this, that, and the other thing. And you can see that really it's a crown, and the crown is the king, and the king is, you know, it's just like, come on. And that was how we started our AP English class with this admonition, never Jack and Jill a story. Stick to the text. Look at what's actually being said. Don't bring your own prejudices. Look at what was going on at the time. And above all, stay sane. Well, lots of people have come up with all sorts of weird things about different parts of Gulliver's travels. And so I'm, I'm really trying not to jack and chill with this. I, I think Swift has lots of different things that he's probably getting at. And it's one of the things that makes this book so interesting is kind of the universality of a lot of what he touches on. So there's, there's going to be some really interesting size and size comparisons and also comparisons between Brobdingnagians and Europeans and humans and non-human things all the way through. There's also a really interesting tack, I think, that's being taken all the way through these two chapters of, of taking Gulliver, who, of course, we identify with. He is our human counterpart in this story. He is our everyman. And we go with Gulliver into a situation where he, he could be in very serious peril, just in general, because people could just step on him and never even know it. So there's, there's that, but we've kind of gotten past that now. We're, we're okay with that. We're beyond that. But now, because he's going to venture out more and more with, with king and queen, he's going to get himself into situations where his humanity, his diminished humanity, is actually the thing that puts him at risk. And you're going to see it go so far as to put his masculinity and his, even his sexuality starts to be ridiculed and, and become just a source of amusement for the Brobdingnagians because they are so much bigger and stronger and they think more moral. And 
Gulliver never did this to the Lilliputians. So, yeah, you can look at the way the Brobdingnagians run their society, and people like to say, oh, well, this is the moral place, and Lilliput wasn't. I don't know how I feel about that. I kind of think, I kind of think not. I kind of think Swift is more complicated than that. Now, there are a couple of words that I want to make sure you know, for, and these come later in chapter five. Uh, a kite, some of you probably know, is a kind of a falcon. An espalier, or espalier, is a trellis that you can um, use to train climbing plants, you know, vine, vines and things, and you, you tie it to the, to the trellis. Um, he, he does this thing, he catches, he catches a bird later, and it's very interesting because look at look at his behavior in that section when it happens and what what kind of animal does it remind you of what he does i have a very clear picture in my mind and i'm so curious to see if you respond similarly i just uh, jonathan swift is just so marvelous it's so much fun to get further and further into this book and see the many, many layers that he's building upon, because it really is quite complicated psychology that he's dealing with of what happens to Gulliver in each of these places. You know, when, when he was in, in Lilliput, he was um, never ashamed for being too big. But here, where he's small and where people laugh at him, he doesn't like being laughed at. He And Part of it, I think, is because, honestly, he's just not the sharpest knife in the drawer and doesn't really understand or want to understand, perhaps, what's, what's going on. But part of it is certainly Swift using Gulliver to show us our own limited awareness, limited understanding, lack of perspective. And, uh, you know, take it if, you, if we take what we do so seriously that we think that everything is the beginning and the end, the life and the death, all of that, then we're kind of, Swift seems to be saying, missing a larger point, that it, it comes down to a matter of perspective. And that goes back to his friend, the philosopher, um, is it Bishop Barclay, who was the one who was talking about perspective? I think it was. Um, it was clearly a topic of conversation for Swift and his friends at the time, this idea that you need to gain some perspective to be able to kind of rationally and calmly deal with this stuff. And again, this is kind of presaging the Age of Enlightenment. You know, we're, we're well on our way into, uh, into all of those philosophers and thinkers, and, and, um, and Swift is definitely a good harbinger of, of that coming. So there's, uh, there's some really interesting stuff that's coming up in today's chapters, and therefore I am going to hush up and let you listen to the fabulous Aaron Ziegler reading you chapters four and five in part two of Gulliver's Travels. Chapter four, the country described, a proposal for correcting modern maps, the king's palace and some account of the metropolis, the author's way of traveling, the chief temple described. I now intend to give the reader a short description of this country as far as I travelled in it, which was not above two thousand miles round Lorbrogrude, the metropolis. For the queen, whom I always attended, never went further when she accompanied the king in his progresses, and there stayed till his majesty returned from viewing his frontiers. The whole extent of this prince's dominions reacheth about six thousand miles in length, 
and from three to five in breadth, from whence I cannot but conclude that our geographers of Europe are in a great error by supposing nothing but sea between Japan and California. For it was ever my opinion that there must be a balance of earth to counterpoise the great continent of Tartary, and therefore they ought to correct their maps and charts by joining this vast tract of land to the northwest parts of America, wherein I shall be ready to lend them my assistance. The kingdom is a peninsula, terminated to the northeast by a ridge of mountains thirty miles high, which are altogether impassable by reason of the volcanoes upon the tops. Neither do the most learned know what sort of mortals inhabit beyond those mountains, or whether they be inhabited at all. On the three other sides it is bound by the ocean. There is not one seaport in the whole kingdom, and those parts of the coast into which the rivers issue are so full of pointed rocks, and the sea generally so rough, that there is no venturing with the smallest of their boats, so that these people are wholly excluded from any commerce with the rest of the world but the large rivers are full of vessels and abound with excellent fish, for they seldom get any from the sea, because the sea fish are of the same size with those in Europe, and consequently not worth catching, whereby it is manifest that nature in the production of plants and animals of so extraordinary a bulk is wholly confined to this continent, of which I leave the reason to be determined by philosophers. However, now and then they take a whale that happens to be dashed against the rocks, which the common people feed on heartily. These whales I have known so large that a man could hardly carry one upon his shoulders, and sometimes, for curiosity, they are brought in hampers to Lorbrugrud. I saw one of them in a dish at the king's table, which passed for a rarity, but I did not observe he was fond of it, for I think indeed the bigness disgusted him, although I have seen one somewhat larger in Greenland." The country is well inhabited, for it contains fifty-one cities, near an hundred walled towns, and a great number of villages. To satisfy my curious reader, it may be sufficient to describe Lorbrogrud. This city stands upon almost two equal parts on each side of the river that passes through it. It contains about eighty thousand houses. It is in length three glonglongs, which make about fifty-four English miles, and two and a half in breadth, as I measured it myself in the royal map made by the king's order, which was laid on the ground on purpose for me, and extended at hundred feet. I paced the diameter and circumference several times barefoot, and computing by the scale, measured it pretty exactly. The king's palace is no regular edifice, but an heap of buildings about seven miles round. The chief rooms are generally two hundred and forty foot high, and broad and long in proportion. A coach was allowed to Glumdalclitch and me, wherein her governess frequently took her out to see the town, or go among the shops, and I was always of the party carried in my box, although the girl, at my own desire, would often take me out and hold me in her hand, that I might more conveniently view the houses and people as we passed along the streets. I reckoned our coach to be about a square of Westminster Hall, but not altogether so high. However, I cannot be very exact. One day the governess ordered our coachman to stop at several shops, wherein the beggars, watching their opportunity, crowded to the side of the coach, and gave me the most horrible spectacle that ever an European eye beheld. There was a woman, with a cancer in her breast, swelled to a monstrous size full of holes, in two or three of which I could have easily crept and covered my whole body. There was a fellow with a wen in his neck, larger than five wool packs, and another with a couple of wooden legs, each about twenty foot high. 
but the most hateful sight of all was the lice crawling on their clothes. I could see distinctly the limbs of these vermin with my naked eye, much better than those of a European louse through a microscope, and their snouts with which they rooted like swine. They were the first I had ever beheld, and I should have been curious enough to dissect one of them if I had proper instruments, which I unluckily left behind me in the ship, although indeed the sight was so nauseous that it perfectly turned my stomach. Beside the large box in which I was usually carried, the queen ordered a smaller one to be made for me, of about twelve foot square and ten high, for the convenience of travelling, because the other was somewhat too large for Glumdalclitch's lap and cumbersome in the coach. It was made by the same artist whom I directed in the whole contrivance. This travelling closet was an exact square, with a window in the middle of three of the squares, and each window was latticed with iron wire on the outside to prevent accidents in long journeys. On the fourth side, which had no window, two strong staples were fixed, through which the person that carried me, when I had a mind to be on horseback, put in a leather belt and buckled it about his waist. This was always the office of some grave, trusty servant in whom I could confide, whether I attended the king and queen in their progresses, or were dispatched to see the gardens, or pay a visit to some great lady or minister of state in the country, when Glumdalclitch happened to be out of order. For I soon began to be known and esteemed among the greatest officers, I suppose more upon account of their majesty's favour than any merit of my own. In journeys, when I was weary of the coach, a servant on horseback would buckle my box and place it on a cushion before him, and there I had a full prospect of the country on three sides from my three windows. I had in this closet a field bed and a hammock hung from the ceiling, two chairs and a table neatly screwed to the floor to prevent being tossed about by the agitation of the horse or the coach. And having been long used to sea voyages, those motions, although sometimes very violent, did not much discompose me. Whenever I had a mind to see the town, it was always in my travelling closet, which Glumdalclitch held in her lap in a kind of open sedan after the fashion of the country, borne by four men and attended by two others in the Queen's livery. The people who had often heard of me were very curious to crowd about the sedan, and the girl was complacent enough to make the bearers stop and to take me in her hand that I might be more conveniently seen. I was very desirous to see the chief temple, and particularly the tower belonging to it, which is reckoned the highest in the kingdom. Accordingly, one day, my nurse carried me thither, but I may truly say I came back disappointed, for the height is not above three thousand foot, reckoning from the ground to the highest pinnacle top, which, allowing for the difference between the size of those people and us in Europe, is no great matter for admiration, not at all equal in proportion, if I rightly remember, to Salisbury steeple. But not to detract from a nation to which during my life I shall acknowledge myself extremely obliged, it must be allowed that whatever this famous tower wants in height is amply made up in beauty and strength, for the walls are near an hundred foot thick, built of hewn stone, whereof each is about forty foot square, and adorned on all sides with statues of gods and emperors, cut in marble larger than the life placed in their several niches. I measured a little finger which had fallen down from one of these statues and lay unperceived among some rubbish, and found it exactly four foot and an inch in length. Glumdalclitch wrapped it up in a handkerchief, and carried it home in her pocket to keep among other trinkets, of which the girl was very fond, as children at her age usually are. 
The king's kitchen is indeed a noble building, vaulted at top and about six hundred foot high. The great oven is not so wide by ten paces as the cupola at St. Paul's, for I measured the latter on purpose after my return. But if I should describe the kitchen grate, the prodigious pots and kettles, the joints of meat turning on the spits, with many other particulars, perhaps I shall be hardly believed. At least a severe critic would be apt to think I enlarged a little, as travellers are often suspected to do. To avoid which censure, I fear I have run too much in the other extreme, and that if this treatise should happen to be translated into the language of Brobdingnag, which is the general name of that kingdom, and transmitted thither, the king and his people would have reason to complain that I had done them an injury by a false and diminutive representation. His majesty seldom keeps above six hundred horses in his stables. They are generally from fifty-four to sixty foot high. But when he goes abroad on solemn days, he is attended for state by a militia guard of five hundred horse, which indeed I thought was the most splendid sight that could be ever beheld till I saw part of his army in Batalia, whereof I shall find another occasion to speak. Chapter 5. Several Adventures That Happened to the Author, The Execution of a Criminal, The Author Shows His Skill in Navigation. I should have lived happy enough in that court if my littleness had not exposed me to several ridiculous and troublesome accidents, some of which I shall venture to relate. Glumdalclitch often carried me into the garden of the court in my smaller box, and would sometimes take me out of it and hold me in her hand, or set me down to walk. I remember before the dwarf left the queen, he followed us one day into those gardens, and my nurse having set me down, he and I being close together near some dwarf apple trees, I must needs show my wit by a silly illusion between him and the trees, which happens to hold in their language as it doth in ours. Whereupon the malicious rogue, watching his opportunity, when I was walking under one of them, shook it directly over my head, by which a dozen apples, each of them near as large as a bristol barrel, came tumbling about my ears. One of them hit me on the back as I chanced to stoop, and knocked me down flat on my face, but I received no other hurt, and the dwarf was pardoned at my desire, because I had given the provocation." Another day, Glumdalclitch left me on a smooth grass plot to divert myself while she walked at some distance with her governess. In the meantime, there suddenly fell such a violent shower of hail that I was immediately by the force of it struck to the ground, and when I was down, the hailstones gave me such cruel bangs all over the body as if I had been pelted with tennis balls. However, I made a shift to creep on all fours and shelter myself by lying flat on my face on the lee side of a border of lemon thyme, but so bruised from head to foot that I could not go abroad in ten days. Neither is this at all to be wondered at, because nature in that country observing the same proportion through all her operations, a hailstone is near eighteen hundred times as large as one in Europe which I can assert upon experience, having been so curious to weigh and measure them. But a more dangerous accident happened to me in the same garden when my little nurse, believing she had put me in a secure place, which I often entreated her to do, that I might enjoy my own thoughts, and having left my box at home to avoid the trouble of carrying it, went to another part of the garden with her governess and some ladies of her acquaintance. 
while she was absent and out of hearing, a small white spaniel belonging to one of the chief gardeners, having got by accident into the garden, happened to range near the place where I lay. The dog, following the scent, came directly up, and taking me in his mouth, ran straight to his master, wagging his tail, and set me gently on the ground. By good fortune, he had been so well taught that I was carried between his teeth without the least hurt or even tearing my clothes. But the poor gardener, who knew me well and had a great kindness for me, was in a terrible fright. He gently took me up in both his hands and asked me how I did. But I was so amazed and out of breath that I could not speak a word. In a few minutes, I came to myself, and he carried me safe to my little nurse, who by this time had returned to the place where she left me, and was in cruel agonies when I did not appear, nor answer when she called. She severely reprimanded the gardener on account of his dog, but the thing was hushed up and never known at court, for the girl was afraid of the queen's anger, and truly, as to myself, I thought it would not be for my reputation that such a story should go about. This accident absolutely determined Glumdalclitch never to trust me abroad for the future out of her sight. I had been long afraid of this resolution, and therefore concealed from her some little unlucky adventures that happened in those times when I was left by myself. Once, a kite hovering over the garden made a swoop at me, and if I had not resolutely drawn my hanger and run under a thick espalier, he would have certainly carried me away in his talons. Another time, walking to the top of a fresh mole-hill, I fell to my neck in the hole through which the animal had cast up the earth, and coined some lie not worth remembering to excuse myself for spoiling my clothes. I likewise broke my right shin against the shell of a snail, which I happened to stumble over as I was walking alone and thinking on poor England. I cannot tell whether I am more pleased or mortified to observe in those solitary walks that the smaller birds did not appear to be at all afraid of me, but would hop about within a yard distant, looking for worms and other food, with as much indifference and security as if no creature at all were near them. I remember a thrush had the confidence to snatch out of my hand with his bill a piece of cake that Glumdalclitch had just given me for my breakfast. When I attempted to catch any of these birds, they would boldly turn against me, endeavouring to pick my fingers, which I durst not venture within their reach. And then they would hop back, unconcerned, to hunt for worms or snails as they did before. But one day I took a thick cudgel and threw it with all my strength so luckily at a linnet that I knocked him down and, seizing him by the neck with both my hands, ran with him in triumph to my nurse. However, the bird, who had only been stunned, recovering himself, gave me so many boxes with his wings on both sides of my head and body, although I held him at arm's length and was out of the reach of his claws, that I was twenty times thinking to let him go. But I was soon relieved by one of the servants, who wrung off the bird's neck, and I had him next day for dinner by the Queen's command. This linnet, as near as I can remember, seemed to be somewhat larger than an English swan. The maids of honour often invited Glumdalclitch to their apartments, and desired she would bring me along with her on purpose to have the pleasure of seeing and touching me. They would often strip me naked from top to toe, and lay me at full length in their bosoms, wherewith I was much disgusted, because, to say the truth, 
a very offensive smell came from their skins, which I do not mention or intend to the disadvantage of those excellent ladies for whom I have all manner of respect, but I conceive that my sense was more acute in proportion to my littleness, and that those illustrious persons were no more disagreeable to their lovers or to each other than people of the same quality are with us in England, and, after all, I found their natural smell was much more supportable than when they used perfumes, under which I immediately swooned away. I cannot forget that an intimate friend of mine in Lilliput took the freedom in a warm day when I had used a good deal of exercise to complain of a strong smell about me, although I am as little faulty that way as most of my sex. But I suppose his faculty of smelling was as nice with regard to me as mine was to that of this people. Upon this point, I cannot forbear doing justice to the queen my mistress and Glumdalclitch my nurse, whose persons were as sweet as those of any lady in England. That which gave me the most uneasiness among these maids of honour when my nurse carried me to visit them was to see them use me without any manner of ceremony like a creature who had no sort of consequence for they would strip themselves to the skin and put on their smocks in my presence while I was placed on their toilet directly before their naked bodies, which I am sure to me was very far from being a tempting sight or from giving me any other motions than those of horror and disgust. Their skins appeared so coarse and uneven, so variously coloured when I saw them near, with a mole here and there as broad as a trencher, and hairs hanging from it thicker than pack-threads, to say nothing further concerning the rest of their persons. Neither did they at all scruple while I was by to discharge what they had drunk, to the quantity of at least two hogsheads in a vessel that held above three tons. The handsomest among these maids of honour, a pleasant frolicsome girl of sixteen, would sometimes set me astride upon one of her nipples, with many other tricks wherein the reader will excuse me for not being overly particular. But I was so much displeased that I entreated Glumdalclitch to contrive some excuse for not seeing that young lady any more. One day a young gentleman who was nephew to my nurse's governess came and pressed them both to see an execution. It was of a man who had murdered one of that gentleman's intimate acquaintances. Glumdalclitch was prevailed on to be of the company very much against her inclination, for she was naturally tender-hearted. And as for myself, although I abhorred such kind of spectacles, yet my curiosity tempted me to see something that I thought must be extraordinary. The malefactor was fixed in a chair upon a scaffold erected for the purpose, and his head cut off at one blow with a sword of about forty foot long. The veins and arteries spouted up such a prodigious quantity of blood, and so high in the air, that the great jet d'eau of Versailles was not equal for the time it lasted, and the head, when it fell on the scaffold floor, gave such a bounce as made me start, although I were at least an English mile distant. The Queen, who often used to hear me talk of my sea voyages, and took all occasions to divert me when I was melancholy, asked me whether I understood how to handle a sail or an oar, and whether a little exercise of rowing might not be convenient for my health. I answered that I understood both very well, for although my proper employment had been to be surgeon or doctor to the ship, yet often upon a pinch I was forced to work like a common mariner. But I could not see how this could be done in their country, where the smallest wherry was equal to a first-rate man-of-war among us, and such a boat as I could manage would never live in any of their rivers. 
Her Majesty said if I would contrive a boat, her own joiner should make it, and she would provide a place for me to sail in. The fellow was an ingenious workman, and by my instructions in ten days finished a pleasure boat with all its tackling, able conveniently to hold eight Europeans. When it was finished, the queen was so delighted that she ran with it in her lap to the king, who ordered it be put into a cistern full of water with me in it by way of trial, where I could not manage my two skulls or little oars for want of room. But the queen had before contrived another project. She ordered the joiner to make a wooden trough of three hundred foot long, fifty broad, and eight deep, which, being well pitched to prevent leaking, was placed on the floor along the wall in an outer room of the palace. It had a cock near the bottom to let out the water when it began to grow stale, and two servants could easily fill it in half an hour. Here I often used to row for my diversion, as well as that of the queen and her ladies, who thought themselves agreeably entertained with my skill and agility. Sometimes I would put up my sail, and then my business was only to steer, while the ladies gave me a gale with their fans, and when they were weary, some of the pages would blow my sail forward with their breath, while I showed my art by steering starboard or larboard as I pleased. When I had done, Glumdalclitch always carried back my boat into her closet and hung it on a nail to dry. In this exercise I once met with an accident which had like to have cost me my life, for one of the pages, having put my boat into the trough, the governess who attended Glumdalclitch very officiously lifted me up to place me in the boat, but I happened to slip through her fingers, and should have infallibly fallen down forty foot upon the floor, if by the luckiest chance in the world I had not been stopped by a corking pin that stuck in the good gentlewoman's stomach. The head of the pin passed between my shirt and the waistband of my breeches, and thus I was held by the middle in the air, till Glumdalclitch ran to my relief. Another time, one of the servants, whose office it was to fill my trough every third day with fresh water, was so careless to let a huge frog, not perceiving it, slip out of his pail. The frog lay concealed till I was put into my boat, but then, seeing a resting place, climbed up and made it lean so much on one side that I was forced to balance it with all my weight on the other to prevent overturning. When the frog was got in, it hopped at once half the length of the boat and then over my head, backwards and forwards, daubing my face and clothes with its odious slime. The largeness of its features made it appear the most deformed animal that can be conceived. However, I desired Glumdalclitch to let me deal with it alone. I banged it a good while with one of my skulls and at last forced it to leap out of the boat. But the greatest danger I ever underwent in that kingdom was from a monkey who belonged to one of the clerks in the kitchen. Glumdalclitch had locked me up in her closet while she went somewhere upon business or a visit. The weather being very warm, the closet window was left open, as well as the windows and the door of my bigger box, in which I usually lived because of its largeness and convenience. As I sat, quietly meditating at my table, I heard something bounce in at the closet window and skip about from one side to the other, whereat, although I were much alarmed, yet I ventured to look out, but not stirring from my seat, and then I saw this frolicsome animal frisking and leaping up and down, till at last he came to my box, which he seemed to view with great pleasure and curiosity, peeping in at the door and every window. I retreated to the farther corner of my room, or box, but the monkey, looking in at every side, 
put me into such a fright that I wanted presence of mind to conceal myself under the bed, as I might easily have done. After some time spent in peeping, grinning, and chattering, he at last espied me, and reaching one of his paws in at the door, as a cat does when she plays with a mouse, although I often shifted place to avoid him, he at length seized the lappet of my coat, which, being made of that country silk, was very thick and strong, and dragged me out. He took me up in his right forefoot, and held me as a nurse doth a child she is going to suckle, just as I have seen the same sort of creature do with a kitten in Europe. And when I offered to struggle, he squeezed me so hard that I thought it more prudent to submit. I have very good reason to believe that he took me for a young one of his own species by his often stroking my face very gently with his other paw. In these diversions he was interrupted by a noise at the closet door as if somebody were opening it, whereupon he suddenly leapt up to the window at which he had come in, and thence, upon the leads and gutters, walking upon three legs, holding me in the fourth, till he climbed up to a roof that was next to ours. I heard Glumdalclitch give a shriek at the moment he was carrying me out. The poor girl was almost distracted. That quarter of the palace was all in an uproar. The servants ran for ladders. The monkey was seen by hundreds in the court, sitting upon the ridge of a building, holding me like a baby in one of his forepaws, and feeding me with the other by cramming into my mouth some victuals he had squeezed out of the bag on one side of his chaps, and patting me when I would not eat, whereat many of the rabble below could not forbear laughing. Neither do I think they justly ought to be blamed, for without question the sight was ridiculous enough to everybody but myself. Some of the people threw up stones, hoping to drive the monkey down, but this was strictly forbidden, or else very probably my brains had been dashed out. The ladders were now applied and mounted by several men, which the monkey observing and finding himself almost encompassed, not being able to make speed enough with his three legs, let me drop on a ridge tile and made his escape. Here I sat for some time, five hundred yards from the ground, expecting every moment to be blown down by the wind or to fall by my own giddiness and come tumbling over and over from the ridge to the eaves. But an honest lad, one of my nurse's footmen, climbed up and putting me into his breeches pocket, brought me down safe. I was almost choked with the filthy stuff the monkey had crammed down my throat, but my dear little nurse picked it out of my mouth with a small needle, and then I fell a-vomiting, which gave me great relief. Yet I was so weak and bruised in the sides with the squeezes given me by this odious animal that I was forced to keep my bed a fortnight. The king and queen and all the court sent every day to inquire after my health, and her majesty made me several visits during my sickness. The monkey was killed, and an order made that no such animal should be kept about the palace. When I attended the king after my recovery, to return him thanks for his favours, he was pleased to relay me with a good deal upon this adventure. He asked me what my thoughts and speculations were while I lay in the monkey's paw, how I liked the victuals he gave me, his manner of feeding, and whether the fresh air on the roof had sharpened my stomach. He desired to know what I would have done upon such an occasion in my own country. I told His Majesty that in Europe we had no monkeys, except such as were brought for curiosities from other places, and so small that I could deal with a dozen of them together if they presumed to attack me. And as for that monstrous animal with whom I was so lately engaged, it was indeed as large as an elephant. If my fear had suffered me to think so far as to make use of my hanger, 
looking fiercely and clapping my hand upon the hilt as I spoke, when he poked his paw into my chamber, perhaps I should have given him such a wound as would have made him glad to withdraw it with more haste than he put it in. This I delivered in a firm tone, like a person who was jealous lest his courage should be called in question. However, my speech produced nothing else besides a loud laughter, which all the respect due to his majesty from those about him could not make them contain. This made me reflect how vain an attempt it is for a man to endeavour doing himself honour among those who are out of all degree of equality or comparison with him, and yet I have seen the moral of my own behaviour very frequently in England since my return, where a little contemptible varlet without the least title to birth, person, wit, or common sense shall presume to look with importance and put himself upon a foot with the greatest persons of the kingdom. I was every day furnishing the court with some ridiculous story, and Glumdalclitch, although she loved me to excess, yet was arch enough to inform the queen whenever I committed any folly that she thought would be diverting to her majesty. The girl, who had been out of order, was carried by her governess to take the air about an hour's distance or thirty miles from the town. They alighted out of the coach near a small footpath in a field, and Glumdalclitch, setting down my travelling box, I went out of it to walk. There was a cow dung in the path, and I must needs try my activity by attempting a leap over it. I took a run, but unfortunately jumped short and found myself just in the middle up to my knees. I waded through with some difficulty, and one of the footmen wiped me as clean as he could with his handkerchief, for I was filthily bemired, and my nurse confined me to my box until we returned home, where the queen was soon informed of what had passed, and the footman spread it about the court, so that all the mirth for some days was at my expense. I feel so bad for Gulliver in that last bit. You know, because he's he's kind of, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't moment. The only reason that he's still being treated well at court is because he is a pleasant diversion. And, you know, they all laugh and think he's so funny and such a funny little man. And so he he has to, anytime he comes across something that allows him to be physical and kind of show off, whether, whether it's them stripping him naked and enjoying the reactions or, or you know, what, he's, he's kind of only valued for his, to them, ridiculously small size, and for what funny little things a little man of that stature is able to do. And it's, it's sad, and it's hard, and yet, you know, it's just like when he, when he was given the title of Nardak back in, in Lilliput, you know, he's very proud of that. And so here, well, the only thing he's able to be respected for is his diminutive feats in their perspective and um and so he's trying to do the best he can and so in this case it gets him stuck in a a cow pie poor gulliver <sighs> his row is not an easy one to hoe is what i'm saying that brings us to the end of this week's show 
I will be uploading for the subscriber supporters the very first kind of introductory section on Canterbury Tales. And we do, in fact, have our Jonathan Harker reading Canterbury Tales for us. So that audio is on the way to you if you have subscribed, plus the next couple of chapters of Cool for Cats. The book is really starting to heat up. And, uh, and I, I get to listen to it before you do, and I'm still enjoying it. And God knows I read that bloody thing hundreds of times. So that's kind of cool. On that happy note, I will leave you. Have a great week. I will talk to you soon with the next couple chapters of Gulliver's Travels. Have a great one. Bye. There are many ways to listen to Craftlet. You can listen on your smartphone via the Stitcher Radio app. You can subscribe free through iTunes, or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app, where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, Volume 2, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlit.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. If you would like to help support the show, please know there are various ways to donate, and all of them help keep Craftlet and Just the Books free and available to you whenever you feel the need for a good story. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.